And he said that man is not born every day. He's once born in a specific historical setting with specific historic qualities. And therefore, he is only complete when he has a relation to these things. So that means that we need our cultural references. We need our language practice to be able to feel complete ourselves. Hey everyone, welcome back to The Big Blend, the podcast about merging cultures, identity, and transmission. Today's guest is Jan Zayn-Negreyib, an expert in the subjects of intercultural language and communication. For those of you who are listening for the first time, you can discover the story behind the podcast in the first episode, The Prologue. Hey, hey. It's been a while since the last episode. I just needed to take a small break, but I'm back and I have a few insightful guests lined up. Today's guest is Jan. She was born in the early 70s in Lebanon, but when the war started, her family emigrated to France. She was five at the time. She stayed in Paris for 22 years, so she really grew up there and built herself in a French environment. She then came back to Lebanon, she was 27 at the time, and worked there for about 10 years, before meeting her Lebanese husband and moving permanently with him to the US. Today, she lives in Maryland in the US, and she's been there for 16 years. The reason why I wanted to have her on The Big Blend is that she recently studied intercultural communications and dove deep into the works of philosophers and sociologists. So I wanted to explore what is said on the subject of language, identity and culture in the academic world. Hi, Jan. Hi, Marielle. So, Jan, let me start by asking you, where are you from? Ah, the question, where am I from? So I'm originally from Lebanon. I grew up in France more than 20 years. And then I've been in the U.S. for 16 years. So Lebanon, France, and the U.S. Is there one that you feel more connected to? It's going to depend on the people I'm with or if there are events happening in one of those countries. For example, when, unfortunately, there was the explosion in the port of Beirut in August 2020, suddenly, you know, you have your Lebanese identity that emerges in a very, very um, violent way. So an event can make your identity more salient, although it can be dormant at times. It does not specifically have to do with the location I'm in. You were born in Lebanon and you left Lebanon when there was the war. Do you remember how you felt when you left Lebanon and moved to Paris? We have to say that in Lebanon, we are, um, I was educated in a French bilingual school. So the French culture, at least the French language, was already part of my everyday routine. So moving to France, for me, at that time, I don't remember it as a big change because of the language. The language was the bridge. Strangely, when my parents started hiring a tutor to teach us Arabic, and I felt so out of place during those Arabic lessons. Although I'm Lebanese, I was bilingual, I mean, I'm bilingual, and in France, Arabic felt strange, although I was from Lebanon. Mm. Because when you came back to Lebanon, then did you feel Lebanese? Did you feel at ease? You felt like you belonged? I think I had evolved so much by being French. Of course, 22 years is a lot. You awaken to life, you know, when you're five until you're 22. All your references are French and Parisian. So when I came back, there were culture clashes. Even with my closest friends, you know, we would argue on why do you do this this way and why I want to do it this way. But at the same time, the values of the, that country are so um, ingrained in us that I would still feel like a fish in the water. Notice the contradiction between having culture clashes and feeling like fish in the water. 
Lebanon had always been a big part of Jan's family story, the culture, the rituals, but it was all happening in a French context. So she developed confusing emotions and conflicting emotions towards the Lebanese culture. So let's dive into the subject. You took on studies in intercultural communications. So on top of understanding how you experienced your journey as a multicultural person, the reason I wanted to have you on the podcast today is to have your more academic point of view on the subject. So can you talk to me a bit about the importance of the link between language and culture? Yes, it has been said that language is culture and culture is language. So when I started digging into this deeper, I realized that language is the truest form of expression of your identity. Also, we have to understand that in cultures, you have symbols and language is one of the biggest symbols. So, for example, If you're living in the U.S. and your grandmother is coming to visit from Lebanon and you don't speak Arabic and she's going to look at your parents and say, why she doesn't speak Arabic? So for the grandparents, speaking Arabic is really a strong anchor of the culture. It's not about specifically speaking the language, it's because the language is a symbol and representative of the culture. So for them, not speaking the language is denying the culture. So in that sense, language and culture are so uh, intimately married that you cannot dissociate one from the other. So let me be, let me be a bit annoying here. Does this mean that if you don't speak the language... You don't necessarily have the culture. If you have all of the other codes, but not the language, does it mean you don't have the culture? So, no, because if you don't have the language, you still can have the culture. It's the major representative of a culture, although it's not the exclusive representative. A question people often get when they're multilingual is, if the person you're talking to understands all of your languages, how do you choose which one to use? You've studied this. Can you tell me a little bit more about this? So my research started with, I wanted to understand steps we go through when we get used to a new country. So in academic terms, that's called identity negotiation. So at which terms do you negotiate your identity? Choosing a language is also part of the identity negotiation. But the good thing is when you find people who speak your language, it is really a relief to be able to speak your language. Now, you touch upon another academic term, which is translanguaging. It's when you are with people uh, who speak the same languages as you, native languages or acquired languages. Translanguaging is the use of different languages together in a specific setting. It's when a multilingual person can use their full linguistic repertoire and hence maximize communications. And for me, for example, it's French, English and Arabic. I'll speak the three languages for them because the brain works in a way where it wants to be the most efficient. So it's going to find the practice that is the most efficient and will just use the language it wants. And on the contrary, and that's where it becomes interesting, when you are with people who speak only one language that is not one of your native languages, for example, me speaking English when I was starting to live here in the U.S., when you don't master all the technical words, it can feel very awkward and you can look like somebody who is five-year-old and who is starting to, to speak. Like I said, part of the identity negotiation where you realize you have to make an effort, you have to learn the language, to be 
be more comfortable in your everyday environment. And this is when you start to change a little bit. So identity negotiation happens at every corner in your new immigrant life. So talking about using different languages when you talk to someone, you did an experiment with your husband. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Yeah, so after I studied the different steps to adapt to a new country, I wanted, I realized that language was a big part of adaptation. And when I started digging a little bit deeper, I wanted to understand exactly which languages were used when. So what I did is that I recorded our family dinners. So I recorded my husband and myself for about 200 minutes. So I, <laughs> I was able to code the conversations word by word to get mm. data and to be able to analyze the conversations more deeply. So what I did is that I coded the conversations by languages first, uh, English, French, and Arabic. Those are the three languages I speak with my husband. And I also coded by topics of conversation. So the topics that emerge from the conversation, it's not that I decide we're going to now talk about this and this and that. No, it was just so natural that you know, this is what we recorded. So the topics were uh, family and friends, school, news, cooking, and work. So the big findings were that for the topics of cooking, family, and school, French was mostly used. For the topic of work, English was used as much as French. Mm. And for me, when I started doing the study, I thought that we would speak exclusively in English when we would be talking about work. Why? Because we work in English, we live in an American country, in an English-speaking country. So for me, it was, it was going to be at least 80 to 90%. So when I saw that it was half English, half French, I started looking exactly at what was being said. Everything in English, whether it is Kareem or me, everything that was said in English was descriptions or facts, or information. And everything that was in French was an opinion, a comment, and ex uh, the expression of a feeling. So, so what does that mean? That means that to express something that is important to us, or an opinion, we used French. English was the language of the head, and French was the language of the heart. Exactly. And what about Arabic? Well, Arabic, what we discovered is that it was just used as bridges, you know, small connecting words. The unsurprising results that I have found is that the, when we discussed news, it was in English because the news were acquired in English. We discussed food in French because my culinary education and experience were acquired in French. And to that aspect, one of the researchers that I have read said that we always return to the language in which the past was experienced. So that means that if you have been in a work situation or personal uh, situation where everything happened in a certain language, it's going to be very difficult to explain it in another language. It will never be, it would never be a fulfilling experience for you to be able to recreate that moment in another language. So what you're saying is that the way that we acquire a skill, a competence stays with us. And that's, it's in this language that we will live it, experience it at a hundred percent for the rest of our lives. Exactly. And that was the third part of my research is how language and culture become so embodied that they become second nature. So first of all, just a quick uh, example. When you count, in which language do you count? French. Why? 
Because we learned, we learned how to count in French. Because it's so natural and obvious. If, if I count in English, although I'm in an English speaking country, it's going to take me for hours. Yeah. And that's a very small example. But if you cone this concept out, you understand that many things you do are because they are ingrained in you through uh, socialization or education or your environment. And they become so second nature that we don't even think, you know, they, they exist in us. So at that point of the discussion, Jan took out her sociology and philosophy books, and we started talking about famous studies and theories around the subject. One of the most prominent sociologists on the matter is Pierre Bourdieu. What he is saying, Pierre Bourdieu, is that everything we do or think is done through our cultural lenses, without us even knowing, unconsciously. He did study on something that is called habitus. Habitus is something that is so much part of ourselves that we don't realize we are uh, replicating this. What he's saying is that our norms, our attitudes and behavior come all from the way we have been socialized, what we have been exposed to and the way we've been educated by our entourage, our families, our uh, society and our country. Okay, so you talked about habitus, which is the real ingrained deep, deep down culture. And then there's the more, I would call it surface culture, I guess. I don't know, there's probably a term for that, that I'm guessing you still, you still acquire throughout your life, even as an adult, right? Human beings are always are in constant evolvement. What's going to happen when you're in a new environment, it's going to make you realize more of what you are. It gives you a more, uh, more of a sense of self. Okay, so what you'll hear now is what happens when you put together two people who don't have English as their native language. Translanguaging would have been pretty useful here. Comment on dit pour, uh, pour accentuer, pour uh, to focus more, to... Stress on, no, accentuate, no. Ouais, c'est bon. To accentuate a little bit more what uh, Pierre Bourdieu was saying, I looked at the work of the uh, Swiss psychiatrist uh, Carl uh, Gustav Jung, and he said that man is not born every day. He's once born in a specific historical setting with specific historic qualities, and therefore he is only complete when he has a relation to these things. So that means that we need our cultural references, we need our language practice to be able to feel complete ourselves. And to answer an earlier question you had, what language do you choose to speak when you speak with people who speak the same languages as you? Because we all want to feel complete and we all want to feel our most genuine and truest identity, we are just going to speak the language we want to speak as long as people understand us. Okay, so what you're saying is that our native language or languages are the ones that make us feel the most complete. So if we move to another, so let's take your example, you move to the US, today you speak daily English. If you didn't have your husband at home or your friends there who speak French and Arabic, you would actually have a part of your, a big part of your identity that would be lost. 
Exactly, Maya. You just um, touched on a very, very important issue is that when we don't have things that define our very personal, integral identity, we don't feel complete. We feel out of place all the time. And that was one of the conclusions of my, of my research is that speaking a language can allow for the truest expression of your identity. And I have a quote from Amin Malouf that I always like to say when I'm talking about this. And he said in his book, Les Identités Meurtrières. Amin Malouf is a Lebanese-French author who wrote a lot on immigration and identity. He says the last chapter is dedicated to language. So he said, nothing is more dangerous than trying to cut the umbilical cord that connects a man to his language. When it is broken or severely disturbed, it has a disastrous repercussion on his entire personality. So I think this really <laughs> completes our... <laughs> That's intense. <laughs> uh, I think it is intense. Like it's, but, well, the nuance of violence, although it's a little bit intense in the sentence, it is true. It is true that for immigrants not being able to speak their language or another culture is cutting a part of them. It's really cutting a part of them. And then at one point also, what I looked into is the association of immigration and losing culture. And in some research, it has been linked with grief, but vi uh, invisible grief, mm. because it's nothing palpable. It's nothing you can, uh, you know, pinpoint at. It's not an artifact. They called it a disenfranchised grief. Because it doesn't really have a name. How do you grieve your culture you don't have anymore? How do you grieve everything that makes a culture, the family reunions, the, the Sunday dinners around, you know, a very good meal with your parents and your family? So there is a grief and it's invisible. So this means that any immigrant or refugee or person just who daily speaks another language than their, I would say, original or native language, to really be able to express their full identity and feel themselves should be actively looking for ways to keep their original language in their lives. Exactly. Today, I'm listening to a lot of podcasts in Lebanese and it brings me comfort somehow. And now I understand why. Exactly. So let me answer your question. So every person should definitely look actively for things that define them the best. And defining you the best is also allowing you to feel your most comfortable self. Mm -hmm. Just like the example you just gave me about you seeking to listen to more and more Lebanese podcasts because you um, you recognize yourself in them. It's a mirror of you through that media. It's a mirror of who you are and who you are is your culture, your identity, your language, and so many different um, aspects that can define a person. So definitely people should be seeking a speaking a language that makes them feel more comfortable because our discussion is based on language, but there are many other things that can enact culture. But also, and, and that's an invitation for host countries, also make effort to procure places where um, the immigrant can speak their language. We live in a constant duality. The duality of cultures, of well-being, of, you know, uh, what I mentioned earlier about identity negotiation. And it can be sometimes a little bit exhausting when you have to explain yourself or you have to try to understand what the other is doing. So there's always a me 
and us versus them. This is always going to be part of the immigrant life, but it has to be taken seriously. And someone in one of my research, someone said that the immigrants, they have two sources of nostalgias, which are their dead ones and their languages. So when you lose something so big that creates so, such a big part of yourself, it can be difficult when you're not able to enact it, to enact your language, which means to enact your culture, which means to enact your real and true self. I also looked into the notion of uh, how we enact language in a geographical location and how the practice of French in your current homeland, me in the U.S., creates what I called an imaginary homeland. That means that when I practice French with my husband or with my friends or whoever speaks French, or if I listen to a French podcast or I watch a French series on Netflix. I feel I'm part of a global society of Francophone uh, people. So it brings a sense of belonging, which I developed into a sense of an imaginary homeland. So you move from having a specific culture and language associated with a geographic territory to something that is more volatile and which is more of an imaginary homeland, but still in the new context, the way you feel about it, it ends up creating a sense of belonging. Mm. And a shared one with everyone who left the geographical space. Exactly. You end up connecting with people who speak French only because they speak French, not necessarily because they are from Lebanon or France. You know, I have lots of colleagues who are from Francophone Africa and we exchange a lot in French. Do you feel that we are moving towards a monoculture, are we merging cultures to the point where the smaller cultures are dying, especially now that you're in the US and it's such a strong and global culture? Do you feel that the other cultures are a bit left aside and are going to die out kind of? So two things here. So it depends, first of all, on the policy of the country you are in. For example, in Canada, they prone multiculturalism. In the US, on the contrary, you have to assimilate. So in Canada, multiculturalism is, in short, making space for every culture to bloom. In the U.S., what they want is that the immigrant have to assimilate into the dominant uh, culture, which is, you know, the American culture. Where does this happen? Like in schools or at work or in the way that the just every day the country works? So it, it's, it's enacted in everyday behavior and attitudes, definitely. But also at the policy level, for example, in Canada, the multiculturalism policy, it will allow citizens, you know, to practice whatever they want, their religion or keep their identities without um, the fear of official persecution. And by extent, Canadians are um, more open to other cultures. In the U.S., I don't think I need to detail this so much. It's in the news, unfortunately. So it's taking a trend where the country is so divided that there are a lot of cultural clashes, political clashes. So to give you an example for the U.S., during the past presidency, there was the so-called Muslim ban, where visas were denied for certain countries that followed their religion. So that's how it can be enacted on a policy level. 
And when it's in the media, it gets into people's minds. So it has uh, reignited the fear of the other amongst a lot of Americans. Mm. Okay. So now let's take a step back. If you had one advice to give to parents who want to transmit several cultures to their kids, languages or not, what would be your advice? So what, uh, what my advice would be is even if you think it's difficult, just keep on doing it. So for example, at one point I stopped learning Arabic because it was very difficult. So when you're in a French speaking country and you're learning Arabic, it's such a different language. There's nothing in common from the letters to the grammar, nothing in common. So keep at it because when the children will be older and adult and understanding more and more their own culture, they will be thinking, oh, why didn't I learn more Arabic? I want to understand the songs. I want to understand the books. So keep at it. That's what I, well, that's what my recommendation would be, even though it's difficult. When the child is young, the child is not going to understand it. I think it's also the job of the parent to make it playful. So it's more relatable for the children. So if it's not, you know, having a tutor like I had, which was a little bit dry, maybe have more games, have more Lebanese friends who speak Arabic, just make it playful. That's actually the same advice that was given in episode three of The Big Blend. Robin had experienced it from a child's perspective. He had learned three languages as a kid, and he strongly encourages parents to keep at it, even if it can be awkward at times. So, Jan, I always end the podcast with this question. What is the smell of home to you? You know, you made me think, although I know you want us to be spontaneous, but it really made me think. But for me, strangely, it's not a smell, it's a color. So I'm going to answer the color red, which is the color of the couches in my parents' home. <laughs> it's funny because when I get there, when I, when I see the house where I want to be back home, it's the color red. Thank you so much, Jan. Thank you, Marielle. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Big Blend. Here are a few things that stood out for me. For us to feel complete and have a full sense of identity, it's important to surround ourselves with elements of our native culture. We mainly talked about language with Jan, but that also applies to other cultural references. So go and find yourself a podcast in your native language. It'll do you good. Second, we always go back to the language in which the past was experienced. So if tomorrow you want to talk about this episode to someone, English will naturally pop up. All in all, Sociologists have proven that culture is not just an extra layer of your identity. It's one of the founding ones and is completely ingrained in us. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Big Blend. If you like what we do, talk about us to your multicultural friends. You can also give us five stars on your podcast app. And if you want to get a glimpse into the newest episodes every month, follow us on Instagram and subscribe to our newsletter on the website, thebigblend.co. Cheers and see you soon.